this fall we're taking um, a few Sundays to talk about some of the distinctives in our church that we are particularly um, excited about. Last week, Tom talked about how our faith and our understanding of God are not only always evolving for us, but actually evolving um, and changing within the scripture itself. And this week, we're talking about the um, related topic of certainty and uncertainty and our evolving relationship with it. And the scripture that I'm looking at this morning comes from the book of Acts, and it takes place in that short time after um, Jesus' death and resurrection, but before the Holy Spirit, so after Easter and before Pentecost. And during that time, Jesus makes a couple um, appearances. Um, and so this would have been a time when everything was up for grabs. I did a talk um, a couple weeks ago on what happens when our master story crashes, <laughs> crashes, like what do we do and everything we thought we knew and we uh, understood and believed dies a humiliating uh, death on a cross. And so during this bleak time, Jesus comes to his friends in Acts 1, verse 4, it says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water. But in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid from their sight. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking in the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Well, the story's kind of interesting. Resurrected, Jesus says, hey guys, stick around because God has this important, amazing gift to give you, and it's not a surprise what the gift is. It's what they've already been told, what they've been promised. They respond by saying, oh, so this is the time that uh, you're going to kick Rome's butt and restore Israel to its former glory. Like, this is the time that, that we're going to become great again and become the reigning superpower. Now, Jesus doesn't get upset with them. He doesn't say, did you hear me? Because I explained already what this time was about. But he does hold true to his purpose, and he says, God is bringing you the Holy Spirit. And in all fairness, 
We do the same thing all the time. The disciples understood the messianic promise to mean the restoration of Israel. So given my church background from a charismatic church, I might have said, so Lord, at this time, will everyone we pray for get healed? Tom's childhood background may have asked, Lord, will we no longer be depraved? We tend to ask questions out of our particular lens and out of our particular needs, but they can miss the point of what God is saying or what God is doing. So in this case, God is saying a few things. Number one, wait. Just wait for God's spirit. Like, stay put, don't go anywhere. God has this gift for you. And number two, Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and dates. In other words, your need to know the answers, to very specific answers to your big questions of life is just that, your need to know. But it will never be about your relationship with me. There's uh, number three, nothing in this passage about truth or certainty. There is the promise to give a gift that keeps humans close or tethered to God. We aren't told how the gift will come. We aren't told when exactly the gift will come. We don't know the implications of the gift. We're told that Jesus will turn in the way we've seen him leave. So maybe that means he'll return like zooming in the sky or like maybe he'll be wearing the same clothes or maybe it just means that a representative of God will come and help us again to learn how to be closer to God. Very specific information does not seem to be what God is into. Jesus does the opposite, telling the most confounding stories of all time. If Jesus calls anything certain and true, it's himself. Sometimes I play with the idea of Jesus having said to his friends something a little bit more concrete. And I imagine Jesus saying, I will return in 800 years to restore Israel. But his voice gets a little bit softer. He, he kind of has something in his throat as he's saying 800. In no time, everyone is arguing. I think it was 80 years that he said, no, I'm pretty sure it was 800 years. Are you sure? Because I was there, and I'm pretty sure he said 80 years. And then someone references the Psalms and says, well, actually, I think God says that, that one day for God is like our whole life, so maybe our whole calculus is wrong. And then all everyone cares about is when Jesus is returning and within a few hundred years we have a number of competing religions around how people heard, interpreted, remembered Jesus' promise return and everyone is certain that they're right. As a teenager, I was looking for certainty. Certainty with a capital C, I might have called it truth and I believed that there was a right, correct, a way to believe and to know God. And I believe that if I found truth, I could adjust my life to all that truth demanded. And I found that certainty when I was 25 in a 
conservative evangelical church, and I was so relieved, and I was so happy to have found truth. And the story I told myself and everyone else was about my dramatic initial encounter with Jesus, which was uh, pretty dramatic. But what that translated to in my mind was that everything about my faith was true and certain and provable. So this is one American seminary um, explanation um, on their webpage of Christian apologetics. Apologetics is quite literally defense of the faith. The Greek word apologia means defense, as a lawyer gives at a trial. In every generation, people face challenges, questions, concerns of the gospel message of the Christian faith. Christians seek not only to explain their beliefs, but also to commend their beliefs. First Peter 3.15 instructs Christians to always be prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and so on. So this is the context into which I became a Christian. So I don't fully understand apologetics, but at its core, our faith is certain and reasonable and provable, and apparently Peter would have us all taking apologetics classes. At 25 years of age as a newly minted believer in Jesus, I quickly adjusted my life and my behaviors around my truth. Now, of course, in some ways, I am conflating certainty and truth, but really what I'm saying is that my truth demanded certainty. And as a result, this was a very secure season for me. I knew not just God, but the right, true God. I knew that the worst Christian was in better standing with God than the most kind and charitable person who didn't confess Jesus. I knew that my Jewish family was going to hell, which was a bummer for all kinds of reasons. I knew that God intended sex to be engaged in by one man and one woman in the context of marriage, and on and on and on. And this was the gift of certainty. Hallelujah. I didn't waver. I knew the truth. Last week, I listened, I guess maybe two weeks ago now, to a podcast that I loved called Dear Alana. And Dear Alana is the tragic story of a young girl who loves God and finds comfort in Catholicism and as a teenager dreams of becoming a nun. But she also realizes that she's gay and that that is incompatible with the particular communities that she's a part of. The clergy that she encounters in her various faith communities love Alana. She is young and talented and full of life. I love Alana. To help Alana in her goal of becoming a nun, they encourage reparative or conversion therapy. If you're not familiar with this form of therapy, 
This is a quote from the Human Rights Campaign website. Reparative or conversion therapy is a dangerous practice that targets LGBTQ youth and seeks to change their sexual or gender identities. Such practices have been rejected by every mainstream medical mental health organization for decades. But due to continuing discrimination and societal bias the LG against LGBTQ people, many practitioners continue to conduct conversion therapy. Minors are especially vulnerable and conversion therapy can lead to depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and suicide. At 24 years of age in December of 2019, just a few months before conversion therapy was banned by the state of Colorado, a young woman in Colorado, unable to reconcile the voices in her head, took her own life. I found the podcast compelling and heartbreaking. Truthfully, I cried through the whole thing, and there were so many similarities to all the stories I hear again and again with friends at Sanctuary. Many of our friends who, when they first came out to their parents, Alana's parents, her mother was totally supportive in this case, but many of our friends, when they first come out to their parents, were gifted with therapy, a talented therapist who could help them become straight. And I think what kept me glued to the podcast, aside from what I thought was really great journalism, and of course, Alana. She had kept tons and tons of journals. She was a prolific and beautiful um, writer, um, and she had written a lot of songs, and they had recordings of some of her songs. So she herself was amazing, but what kept me compelled was the role of certainty in all of this. The clergy she encountered were like my younger self. They were confident of their truth being the truth, confident enough to, for the sake of Alana, for the sake of love, encourage her, refer her to these reparative <laughs> therapies where she could be fixed so that she could become a nun. I can't pretend to know the hell that this is, but I know that some folks in our community do. And 41% of youths live in states that allow conversion therapy. When I first conceived of this sermon on uncertainty, I pictured it being light and funny, because God knows I'm so light and funny. Um, but then I got caught up in Alana, and I got caught up in the many stories that I've been brought into over the years, the stories that you and I have told each other. And I think how important it is to me, a straight, cisgender, Jewish follower of Jesus to be uncompromisingly me. And I think how much I want for you and for all of your children 
um, to be um, fully and uncompromisingly you and how much I want for my children and my amazing grandchildren to be fully and uncompromisingly them. And somehow light and funny didn't quite capture it. It's not just that we have one scripture that has something to say about how we hold things. So much of scripture speaks to certainty. The internal arguments, one book honors Ruth, our very Gentile great-grandma of King David, and the very next book in the Bible tells the Hebrew people that they must never intermarry. Or Jesus' emphasis on fruitfulness, which asks not what is true or certain, but rather, what is the outcome? Did it bear good fruit? Is society flourishing? And all of Jesus' challenges to the religious interpretations of his day are challenges to one sect's belief systems of that day. So I will sum this up with a couple points. The first one is certainty demands an unchanging or unyielding response to what we're certain of. If one is certain that early in the Bible God condemns queer expressions of sexuality, and if one believes that as early as Leviticus, God calls us to love our neighbor, and if one takes the Bible very seriously and very literally and takes these verses as command from God, then one can start a church and call it Westboro Baptist and out of sincere intellectual and studied faith because the founder of Westboro uh, Baptist and their earlier, earliest members are all people with graduate degrees who have studied scripture. Out of a sincere intellectual and studied faith, be responsible for insidious Hate, hate against queer people, against people of color, against Jewish people. Megan Phelps, who is the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, the founder of Westboro Baptist, left the church with her sister 10 years ago. They were in their mid-20s in a harrowing journey. Um, after she was convinced on Twitter that her way of doing certainty might be flawed. So in these 10 years, she's written a, a book called Unfollow. She's spoken on NPR and lots of um, newscasts. She blogs. And her whole message is the danger of certainty. And this is a quote. Doubt was nothing more than a deep and practical awareness that outside our sphere of knowledge, there existed information and experience that might show our position to be an error. Doubt causes us to hold a strong position a bit more loosely, such that an acknowledgement of ignorance or error doesn't crush our sense of self or leave us totally unmoored if our position proves untenable. Certainty is the opposite. It hampers inquiry and hinders growth. It teaches us to ignore evidence that contradicts our ideas and encourages us to defend our positions 
at all costs, even as it reveals itself as indefensible. Certainty seeks, sees compromise as weak, hypocritical, evil, suppressing empathy and allowing us to justify inflicting horrible pain on others. And number two, deconstructing is not a process by which we get the new and improved version of truth and certainty. Deconstructing is the process of interrogating our beliefs so that we can discern if they still serve the world as they are. When we deconstruct, we aren't coming up with a newer, better theology so we can now be absolutely certain and see where that takes us, though hopefully we do see new things all the time. But the point of deconstruction of any kind is that by virtue of our evolving, we have to deconstruct what worked yesterday because if we are different today, then our theologies need to accommodate the difference. When my friend, Akadian Borek, who some of you know, um, first came to our community, 10-ish years ago, we had already been asking questions about inclusion but we had not come out yet as fully inclusive. Katie and her wife, Paula, came to us at that time, and my friendship with Katie forced a deconstruction. I had to face that Katie loved Jesus as much as I did, and I had to face that Katie was reading the same scriptures that I read. And I had to face that Katie embodied Jesus incredibly. When I looked into her eyes, I saw God. My theology was crumbling even if I couldn't figure everything out even if I didn't know what it meant about all the Bible passages, even if it meant no longer being welcome in our denomination, even if it meant having a faith crisis, even if it meant losing most of our friends outside this community. My theology was being deconstructed or I was deconstructing it, I'm not sure which, because it had to happen. As our church embraced inclusion, it would take us years to reconstruct or fully understand our theology, who God is, how exactly the Bible informs our faith. And of course, God has only grown more expansive and more mysterious. But wherever we are currently, we take seriously the reality that humans are pretty sure that their current understanding of truth is the right one. And that pretty much all the time later, 
come to critique that very same understanding. So all that to say we do take our faith seriously. We take it really seriously. We center Jesus. We understand the Bible to be our sacred text, though not inerrant and not literal and sometimes a cautionary tale. But we are happily holding things loosely, expecting to continue to see things in new ways that bring increasing healing to us and to our world. Amen.